Welcome back to the Leading Inclusively podcast. I'm Denise Hummel, and I am extremely happy to have my guest and dear friend, Sally Helgeson. Sally has been cited in Forbes as the world's premier expert on women's leadership. She's a best-selling author, speaker, and leadership coach, and she's been ranked among the world's top 20 leadership thinkers by global gurus and will be honored this fall by the International Coaching Consortium, NICO, for her influence on organizational culture, an issue that is also near and dear to my heart, Sally, as you know. Yes. Sally's most recent book, How Women Rise, co-authored with legendary executive coach Marshall Goldsmith, examines the behaviors most likely to get in the way of successful women. It became the top seller in its field within a week of publication, and rights have been sold in 13 languages, and it's one of my personal favorite reads. Sally, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Denise. It's wonderful to be with you. Now, before we jump right into this, I just want to ask you, is there anything else you want to add to your intro? You have so many accomplishments, and of course, I only you know, read off just a, a, a few of them. Well, two things. The first is we have now, since I wrote that, sold in 17 languages as opposed to 13, and it keeps growing. We just added Arabic this week, which I'm thrilled about. Wow. Uh, the other thing is, I think that it's important... Um, uh, for listeners to understand, is that a lot of the research I've done for the eight books I've written uh, related to women's leadership and inclusive leadership, I've done that research by doing workshops and seminars uh, all over the world for the last 30 years. So it has really given me an extraordinary uh, base of information and stories and data uh, that I was thrilled to be able to use to its full effect in How Women Rise. And we can all benefit from that. Um, as, as I had mentioned to you in, in previous conversations, there is so much uh, resource out there uh, relative to helping enterprise to learn how to be more inclusive. Yeah. In fact, that's a, a huge focus of our work uh, as we work with these very large companies to help them to be more inclusive in their approach to recruiting, retaining, and advancing women. But what I love about How Women Rise is that it actually reaches directly to women and gives them some, some historical evidence, but also some very practical ideas and tips and solutions about how to be more strategic in helping themselves rise through the talent pipeline to senior leadership positions. So I think the first thing that I'll ask you, uh, if you don't mind, is just um, if you don't mind sharing some insights about what inspired you to, to write this book. Sure, Denise. Uh, I was inspired to write this book by Marshall Goldsmith's big bestseller from 2009, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, which is about the habits and behaviors most likely to get in the way of successful people and hold them back as they seek to move to a higher position. I thought the premise of the book was brilliant. It is that the same habits and behaviors that can serve you well early in your career can become problematic and hold you back as you try to move higher. However, what I noticed from having worked at that point, uh, I guess over two decades with women leaders, was that some of the habits and behaviors that are a big, a, a, a real impediment for women were not in the, be, in the book, uh, Marshall's book, and some 
of the habits and behaviors he stresses as very important did not really apply to most women. You know, he starts, Marshall starts off with learn to apologize. Now, this is something that most women don't have much of a problem with. So I was thinking, however, that it would be extremely useful to have uh, for women uh, some, some resource that could help them identify what it was that was in their control, their own habits and behaviors that could get in their way. So I proposed to Marshall uh, with the help of a couple friends who also thought it was a fantastic idea that we collaborate on taking that model, taking that template, but addressing women and specifically the habits and behaviors that get in women's ways. So um, how women rise is the result. And what's the outcome that you hoped for? The outcome we hoped for was twofold. We hoped to give women a very clear template for action in terms of thinking about, as I said before, what they could control in how they approach their work that would lead to them being more successful, having more satisfaction in their work and more satisfaction really in their lives as they found a way to realize their full potential. We had a second uh, objective, which was also that the book was being written and addressed to women, but we wanted to provide something that both men and organizations could learn from in order uh, so that men could be more effective allies, champions, sponsors, mentors, peers, bosses, supporters of women in the workplace. And we seem to have met both of those objectives. We've had very positive uh, feedback, not just from women, but real interest from men. I did a program in Las Vegas at a construction super conference. So it was all people in the construction industry and it was a women's leadership workshop. And I had 65% of the participants who showed up were men. Wow, that's uh, amazing. Really interesting. They said, we need, you don't have to sell us on uh, the need to get better at attracting, retaining, engaging, promoting women. We need advice on how to do that. And that's why they were there. So that was very heartening to me. That's absolutely awesome. Um, I, I want to get into, well, well, first of all, let me ask this question. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like you've achieved that outcome? I mean, you've been out and about, you've been on book tours, you've been speaking, you've been talking to people. What's the general reaction? Do they feel like you've achieved that? I am bowled over by the response. I really had not expected it to be so substantial. I went on a three-month book tour. The book's almost two years old. I went on a three-month book tour, and I have been booked solidly nonstop in companies all over the world from Kuala Lumpur to Bangalore to, uh, to uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and, and all over the United States, Canada, Europe, uh, because people want this message. They want actionable advice and real practical tips in what they can do. And it's convinced me I will never again write a book that is not really clear in spelling out what people can do, not analyzing a problem, but providing solutions. And I think that that's what this book has achieved, um, partly because it has such a, it draws so much from coaching practice and, and partly because the, 
really <laughs> the wealth of experience uh, that Marshall and I both, both brought, probably a combined 70 years of working in this field has, has been substantial. Well, to your point, you know, we do spend a lot of time uh, asking why this happened, how it happened. And frankly, there's enough historical information and evidence about the why and the how. What we need to be asking is what can we do differently? That's exactly And and, and bringing accountability to that, both, as you said, organizationally to enterprise, but also, uh, you know, to to men actively in the workplace. and, and, And finally, and most completely, to women because at the end of the day, the only people whose behavior we can control as women is our own. So having said that, um, of course, we can't address every single one of the habits that you're attempting uh, to to change, but just starting with a a few, and, and, and I'll look to habit number one, what, what is this reluctance to claim your achievement about and, and how can women change their behavior around this particular habit? Reluctance to claim your achievement, I think, comes primarily uh, from two sources. The first is women have gotten a lot of pushback in the workforce about not being, not talking too much about themselves you know, behaviors that are perceived of as healthy self-promotion with women are at to- with men are at times perceived of as arrogant or self-serving when women do them. And I think that this has made a lot of women kind of gun shy about talking about their own achievements. I do think there's also something in how women have traditionally related to the world that women are very uh, apt to emphasize teamwork. So I see this very often, you know, somebody will say, oh, you did a great job on that. Oh, it wasn't me, it was my team. Well, it was your team, but it was also you. It's not an either or. So women can kind of deflect a lot of the credit that they're openly offered onto someone else just because of their desire to acknowledge that a support network is really important. None of us can do this alone. So I think those are the are two factors. And what the combination of them results in is that women, and this, this goes to a number of the habits and behaviors, women often spend a lot of time trying to proactively manage what people's responses will be to them as opposed to engage that time in trying to think about how can I be as clear and as accurate and as strong in answering this question or in representing what I've done or sharing it, sharing it as important information with other people. So we got- Sally, can I just just interject for a second because I have had this experience recently. (laughs) And so I absolutely have. So so we're in the middle of a capital raise, you know, because we've developed um, technology and um, having, you know, knowing that I have to be bigger than life, I have to cast off this persona that I'm not going to die or sleep until I'm successful in order for investors to really believe that I'm serious about this, that I have the ability to pull this off. I have to project myself that way. By the same token, I am 
um, acutely aware of the fact that if I do that, I'm going to be perceived potentially as overly aggressive, et cetera. I have literally micromanaged this concept to the point where I come off as being, you know, this bigger than life persona, but I make sure that I am not wearing the power suit, but instead I'm now wearing a tasteful black, you know, not, I'm not going to say cocktail dress. It's a very professional dress. It's just slightly infinitesimally above the knee, but I have to, the fact that I even have to think that through and, you know, as opposed to making sure that my facts and my projections and the Excel spreadsheets and everything that I have to, to show to investor line, line up. Well, I have to do that, but I also have to manage this other piece so that I don't get in my own way. Um, but my, but my point is, you know, to some extent, it's reality, right? What do I do about the fact that, that this is real? I haven't made this up. It, no, we haven't made it up, and it is real. But you know one thing I've learned along the way, and I'll give you a good example of it from my own experience, is that if you present in a very clear way that is, is not especially defensive, but not overly aggressive, but is just comes off as invested in what you believe. Even if people are at first sort of don't know how to respond to that or, well, I didn't think she'd be like that, they get used to it over time. And by rushing in to fill in that space where we're managing their perceptions in advance, oh, I don't want this person to think I'm like this. I, you know, I want to make sure that they know I'm really XXX, that we don't give people that space. And let me share this example because this had a big influence on me. Um, I, before I got into this field, back in the 80s, I was in corporate communications. And I remember being in a meeting with six very senior executives, all men. And I had an idea I thought was really good. And I shared it. And these guys were really senior to me. And as we were walking out, one of the guys who was there sort of sidled up to me and he said, well, <laughs> you sure aren't, uh, you sure aren't shy about sharing your opinion. And I don't know what got into me, but I just said, no, I'm not. I didn't say, oh, did I step out of line? I'm so sorry. You know, maybe I shouldn't have spoken. Was it inappropriate? You know, great, sir. I apologize. Nor did I say, yes, I have the, I, I, you know, it's my perfect right to the, you know, I didn't do any of that. I just dropped all those responses. And I just said, uh, no, I don't have a problem, you know, sharing my views. And uh, he kind of walked off thing, like, who does this gal think she is? But about a month later, I was in an office next to an office where he was with a coworker. He didn't know I was there. And I heard him say to this coworker, you know what I like about Sally? I, she said, what? And he said, you're not, she's not afraid to share your opinion, her opinions. You really know where you stand with her. In other words, inadvertently, I had given him time to come to terms with who I was. And that's my concern. It's a difficult situation if you're making a presentation about trying to raise venture capital. Of course, there's not that much time to see these people. But in most situations, in most situations, we see the people whose views we're trying to uh, proactively manage. We see them on a fairly regular or maybe sporadic, but, but consistent basis. And we need to give them time. People don't know what to do with a woman who 
comes off as very clear and confident. And there's nothing we can do about that except be that way, be that way genuinely and wait for them to catch up because most people of goodwill will catch up with that. I love that. Opinion. That is great. That's good advice. I'm going to, I'm going to take that to heart actually. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about this, this whole concept of overvaluing expertise. Do we really overvalue expertise? And if so, what, what are we undervaluing as a result? Well, in my observation, great careers are built on three things. They are definitely built on expertise. That is the effective harnessing of the talents and skills that you bring to a job. But they're also built upon visibility and the connections, the network that you put together. And all three of them are essential. In my experience, and I've and having listened to women, as I said, for 30 years, especially in the programs that I've delivered in companies, what I hear is the idea from women that you come into a new job and your first priority is to really learn everything about it you can and become as expert as possible. I hear women say things like, well, um, you know, I'm going to spend the first six months just keeping my head down and learning the job, making sure I'm really good at it. And then I can lift up and start to build the relationships and the visibility. But they sort of don't want anybody to see them or notice them until they feel fully comfortable doing a job, which when they start, they, you know, they haven't done before. So they, they don't exactly know how to do perfectly. Nobody does in a new job. And it's not an effective way to go about it. What I've noticed is that the most effective people in an organization come into a new job and their first question is, who do I need to know here in order to make sure this is a success? So right away from the get-go, that's a concern with both uh, the network and also the visibility. To make sure this is a success means not just doing a good job, but getting noticed for what you do um, and bringing it to the attention of the people who need to know. So that's, so, that's somewhat related to the other two yeah. habits then I, I would imagine that's in right. terms of building yeah, rather than right. leveraging relationships and enlisting allies from day one. It's very similar to enlisting allies from, from failure to enlist allies from day one, which is, is a, a typical thing that women do again, out of this anxiety to show their expertise and this belief that, you know, they need to be completely qualified in order to be acceptable in a job. And, and that, you know, going back to that one, one of the issues with that, you know, there are men who struggle with this too. It's very common to overvalue expertise if you're in a profession like accounting or engineering, something that requires serious professional skills. Uh, and where the costs can be high if you don't uh, fulfill those skills, um, if you're not comfortable with them. So that's an important thing. But what I don't see men doing that women often do is, is feeling that they may not be ready for the next job or promotion because they're not doing what they're doing now perfectly. And I've heard women say this, you know, they wanted me to move on to this, but I feel like I've really got more to learn here. And, um, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So, and I hear frustration all the time from internal uh, uh, HR people and from headhunters that women immediately start by voicing why they're often 
uh, why they're not ready for the next job. And I think that that's that overinvestment in expertise. Sally, can you share with me some of the trends you've noticed or, or, or maybe in, you know, anticipate from interacting with, with, with these women? I'm, I'm very curious about that, this. Yeah, with all the, this big uh, resource that I have of professional women that I interact with on an ongoing basis, I could say that I see three trends that have emerged that I think will be instrumental in shaping women's opportunities going forward. The first one is that women have much more confidence than they used to, that the skills they bring to an organization are appropriate and they are real leadership strengths. When I started, when I wrote The Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership in 1990, uh, I was looking at the skills and characteristics that women at their best brought to leadership. And, you know, they were things like, you know, ability to build strong relationships, communicate directly up and down a chain of command, uh, comfort with diversity, uh, leading from the center. And the pushback that I got at that time was, well, these are wonderful skills, but they're soft skills. They're not leadership skills. Today, all those skills are recognized as leadership skills. We are in an environment that places much more emphasis on what, is, what are people, what are leaders' capacity to be able to motivate, to engage, to excite people, to get them, to help them develop their talents to their fullest rather than the old hierarchical model that we had until the technology changed. So I think women understand that their characteristics are really needed in the contemporary workplace. Um, they're in the right time, they're in the right place at the right time. And that that gives women substantially more confidence as leaders and greater willingness to go for it in terms of leadership than I've seen. So confidence is the first thing. The second thing I've seen is much greater solidarity among women. Back in the 90s, when I started doing a lot of women's leadership initiatives, what was noteworthy to me was that when you had an initiative for women and there were women who were high potentials, what we today would call high potentials, or women at any kind of um, you know, level that wasn't the most senior level, the senior level women wanted nothing to do with it, nothing to do with it. They were afraid that it, they would be tagged as women instead of leaders, and they didn't see it in any way advantaging them in the organization. And were they also operating from a, from a position of scarcity as opposed to abundance as well? That's exactly right. They mm -hmm. were coming from that position. Um, and they were afraid that if they were seen as a woman that, yeah, of course they were seen as a woman, they were a woman. But if they were seen as a woman or as you know, trying to support other women that it would undermine their credibility with men. Um, and it was very hard to get them involved and in supporting any of this. And that has changed dramatically. I see women who see supporting other women as part of their brand not just the right thing to do, but part of their brand and a way of positioning themselves and strengthening themselves, both in their organization and their sector. So that has changed dramatically. And women who are reluctant to do that, it's not very good for them 
really, because they're seen as obstructionists and problematic. So that's been a big change, that, that feeling of solidarity. Um, and the other thing is uh, that I've seen evolve and that I believe is going to be really important in the years ahead is there's much more recognition that it's important to have allies if you're going to develop a really satisfying career. And that you need allies broadly. You need allies internally. You need allies externally. You need female allies. You need male allies. You just need to put together your posse of people who support you, and um, and that that's essential. So I think that there's much more recognition of that, and I think that there's more openness. As I said at the beginning, I, I find men much more open to the idea of being allies of women than in the past, in the very long past. And, uh, and this is relatively new, and I think it bodes extremely well for women's advancement. That's just great. It's, it's so it's so wonderful when you talk about trends and they're actually going in the right direction. And I think that that's going to be heartwarming for a lot of people. You know, in particular, we have a lot of controversy going on with this particular administration. You know, we've gone up and down in terms of uh, what's politically correct and incorrect in terms of uh, everything from misogyny to racism. So I'm glad to hear that kind of a positive thing. Uh, and, and, moving on to, you know, sort of an adjacent subject, you know, we've had, you know, this whole hashtag me too, um, that has sort of been front focus in, in terms of social media and the media in general. And you, know, you and I both know that to some extent it was a, it was a great thing because it brought to the forefront some issues that had really not been acceptable to talk about, were not being spoken about. And so that was a great thing. We've also seen some incredible backfiring in yeah. enterprise. I mean, I have some clients where the general counsel has come right out and said um, to men, you know, don't, don't travel with women, don't take them to dinner, don't even be seen in a taxi with them, which of course is the direct opposite <laughs> of what we're looking for. So uh, tell, tell me a little bit in your own words about the distinction between, let's say, hashtag me too and the genuine advancement of gender parity in the workplace. Yeah, I think they're very, I'm really glad you asked this question and that you phrase it this way, because I think it's very important to distinguish them. Uh, hashtag Me Too is concerned specifically with harassment, not advancement, harassment. And that's what it, it addresses. It addresses the historical and ongoing fact that women have faced sexual harassment at work, and that this is an enormous barrier for women. Um, and so it's an historical trend. That's not saying that it existed in the past. It still exists, but it's backward facing, and it's also painful. And in that way, um, it's a very positive thing but it can have a lot of, there can be a lot of negative focus, especially when people are going back and you find people, you know, I'm trying to figure out if in, in 1975, when that guy said this to me, if that was, you know, that's, that's not a helpful direction to be going in necessarily. People who've been genuinely harassed understand and know when they have been. But I distinguish harassment as that's one specific sort of siloed thing that happens, 
But women's advancement is bigger than that. It's forward facing and it's almost an entirely positive subject because what women's advancement um, implies and has to contribute is the ability to, for organizations to identify and develop and shape leaders that work given how the global economy works now. Our entire workplace has been transformed by demographic change, which is, you know, doesn't need any explanation, by technological change, an entirely different techno architecture of technology by which we do our work, and by economic change, the switch to a really global economy. And in order to th uh, thrive, given these changes, organizations really require not just a broader base of leadership, but different leadership capabilities than they had in the past. And women are the extraordinary resource for that. I often think of it as a fortunate confluence of, um, of what's, what's coming together. Women bringing characteristics into the workplace at the very time when they're what's needed. So that's a long-term big, future-facing positive trend. And I think it's important to distinguish it from the hashtag me too. I do believe, because I've watched this over my career, that once something gets out there, there's a, everything seems to relate to it for a while, but we begin to work out sort of protocols about how to address it. And I think we're in the stages of that. If I can give an analogy, I remember uh, I started doing a lot of these uh, workshops for women in the early 90s. And I remember about the mid 90s when cell phones were starting to become popular. You would give a talk in front of 200 people and people would, people's phones would be going off like crazy and people would be jumping up and popping out and answering phones. The, answering the phone was suddenly the most urgent thing that you could do. And that was considered perfectly acceptable I'll tell you for a speaker, it was very distracting, but that's how it operated. It went on for a couple of years. And then what I noticed is that the, the, the leaders in the room completely stopped doing that. It makes you look overly responsive. It's distracting to yourself and to everybody else. So it just stopped being something that was even remotely acceptable and people turn their phones off. So we get used to things. And I think we will evolve better ways of handling instances of harassment that are less threatening to the enterprise and to, um, to the, the, the shared mission of trying to create great organizations. We're not at that place yet. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a win-win you know, win to go to one extreme or the other. So if right. we're going to be asking women to be silent and not, and not holding others accountable for their behavior, that is not a win. Neither is it a win um, when we go into litigation, and I, I will tell you, Sally, you, I know you know this. I used to litigate these cases. I mean, uh -huh. I, uh, you know, I, I tried and won the first class action under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh -huh. I've tried, I've tried class actions related to gender, and I know from firsthand experience that there is a winner and a, a loser, and nothing much ever changes anyway. What we need is a system by which women can have an actual voice. 
um, and that something positive could potentially come from having that voice um, in real time. But the other thing I will say, you know, just to buttress what you have just said, um, is that yes, you know, there are women that are being actively um, sexually harassed and and who knows, maybe that will always be the case because it takes all kinds. There are all sorts of human beings on the face of the earth. But it, I would I would say that it's the, you know, the, the microaggressions, you know, the more, uh, le- the, the less dramatic events that have a systematic impact on us. The fact that we get interrupted eight to 10 times more than men, the fact that we're the only women's in the, women in the room, the fact that somebody might crack a joke at our expense and therefore reduce our power in some sort of a small way or take us off our game at a critical moment when, when, when um, that balance of power is extremely important, um, that is much more uh, difficult to, to manage than the, than the ultimate drama of a, of a, of a, of a Me Too type situation. I agree with that very, very strongly. The patronizing, condescension, et cetera. And we don't want to get into a situation where we're litigating those. We want to develop a situation where we have a non-litigious way to begin to address those and raise awareness. And in fact, I saw how Women Rise as making a contribution to this because it helped raise awareness among men about the habits and behaviors that can be a problem to women and begins to begins to open up that conversation and broaden it. So I agree with you very strongly. I think that's much more, what you're describing is much more likely to hold women back. Yep. Um, but the way that we deal with it is to look to you. Know, we can't always control that. So the way we look to it is how do we handle it? How do we enlist allies? How do we bring visibility to what we do so that we have more power, authority, and influence? And that has its impact. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, before we wind down, Sally, is there is there anything else that you want to leave our audience with? You've already given us such incredible, um, impactful knowledge uh, in, in such a usable manner. But is there just one last thing that you'd like to leave our audience with? Sure, Denise. You know, we've been talking about enlisting allies a lot. We've been dancing around that and that, you know, failure to enlist allies from day one is one of the habits or behaviors in, in, the, in the book. But from having done the workshops now for two years on how women rise, what I'm really seeing is that allies serve an extraordinary, can be engaged in an extraordinary way to help you address a habit or behavior that's getting in your way. And that that can create buy-in from people. It can create notice. You know, people, she's really working on that. And one of the things that I've come to advocate is a kind of informal enlistment of allies when you're trying to work on a habit or behavior. Take the habit or behavior that you started with of reluctance to claim your achievements. It's good to have, and there's information certainly in How Women Rise about how to deal with that. But another way you can think about dealing with it is, say you decide that that has the potential to get in your way. You can go to five people and say, look, I'm really working because I've identified that my reluctance to claim my achievements is problematic. You'll be in this meeting with me. Could you just watch and see you know, if I'm getting more effective at that? Can you watch and see if you think maybe I'm going overboard in the other direction? Can you just give me your thoughts and feedback? 
And that in, by doing that, you're really leveraging that person in order to assist you in your own leadership development. And it's very, very positive and, and has lots of effects. It, it advertises the fact that you're committed to changing. It, it does a better job of positioning you as a leader. It's very disarming habit or behavior too. You can also ask somebody who thinks really good at it. You know, I noticed that you are very skilled at claiming your achievements in a way that doesn't seem obnoxious or bragging or all about me. Is there something that I could learn from you? So is there some way you do this that could be helpful to me? So with every single habit in the book, there's a way of doing that. So I really, my, I always say to people, the most important thing about behavioral change is it's not effective if you try to do it alone or in a vacuum. You want support, you want other people engaged, and that's your first task. That's just great. Sally, thank you so much for joining us. I, I have so enjoyed this. Um, and, and I want to thank everyone for, for listening. That was Sally Helgeson, and I'm Denise Hummel, and this is the Leading Inclusively podcast series. If you enjoyed today's discussion, please feel free to rate and review our work and subscribe to the series so that you're informed of future episodes. Thank you again, and see you all next time.